Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to discuss the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, the California utility that was found responsible for the destructive campfire of 2018, and its proposal to give wildfire victims shares in the company in lieu of a total cash payout. And then Rick Marshall joins me to give some spice on Boeing's new board and the ex-Facebook sustainability officer that started a group to help employees at big companies press their bosses for more aggressive policies to fight climate change. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The California utility giant Pacific Gas and Electric Company, or as you might know it, PG&E, is still dealing with the fallout from the devastating campfire of 2018 in California that it was proved to help cause. PG&E was forced to file for bankruptcy in 2019. Its CEO, Geisha Williams, stepped down from her position, blaming climate change for the woes of the company. And then PG&E was directed by California courts to pay its creditors, its insurers, the hedge fund companies that took out claims on its insurers, and of course, the victims of the fire. So PG&E came up with this plan to do that. The hedge funds would get cash, the insurance companies would get cash, but the citizens, the 81,000 people that filed claim against PG&E, they would get a two-part pie. First, they get $6.75 billion USD. Second, they would get the equivalent of $6.75 billion of common stock in the reorganized PG&E. Now, this is all just a proposal. The courts and regulators still need to approve the plan. And the most recent courtroom proceeding that occurred on February 21st was that the United States Bankruptcy Corp of San Francisco decided that parties would now have to file what's called a proposed Fire Victims Claims Resolution Procedure Summary, basically asking for victims to come forward and file another claim, and then, and then the court can decide if this plan is okay. But regulators do need to approve this plan by June 30th. And if it doesn't, PG&E, which provides around 60 million Californians their electricity, won't have access to state funds and will likely be turned over to the state. And this is kind of an interesting payout for victims. It's not the first time that this thing has happened. But in effect, PG&E has made the victims shareholders that can control at the current rate, around 20.9% of the company. And PG&E isn't the easiest company to own. It has a long history of environmental and community impact liabilities. The company was on the hook for poisoning the groundwater. Uh, it was featured, by the way, in the movie Aaron Brockovich. That was the case. That was PG&E. There was also this massive explosion of a pipeline in San Bruno, California in 2010, which was PG&E's responsibility. And not only did they get fined $3 million, which isn't that much, but they got a $90 million class action lawsuit filed against them by its shareholders for gross mismanagement of the situation. And then there was this Wall Street Journal investigation that recently came out, which found through a Freedom of Information Act request that PG&E knew for years its transmission lines could spark wildfires, but the company did nothing to fix them. But I wanna go back to this settlement and how this settlement was structured. What does a half cash, half stock settlement mean for the victims? And what does this mean for the broader market that has to deal with the climate crisis going forward? Well, I have Rick Marshall, 
my governance consigliere, and Umar Ashbak, our lead analyst on PG&E, to tell me. And Umar, since you cover the company, I am curious what you think about this settlement. Is it a positive for the victims, or is it a futile attempt to avoid any real justice for the victims? Well, this is an interesting question. The victims face a potential double whammy. They have already been burnt by the wildfires in terms of property damage or worst in terms of lives lost. And now this. So the compensation is tied to the vagaries of the equity market. And as we know, the judge presiding over the bankruptcy proceedings has already expressed dissatisfaction, which could be a signal to what the company would be facing going forward. Any negligence found in, in prior cases would result in further penalties, which the company's shareholders would have to bear. Because if a company isn't found negligent, they can just pass those costs on to their customers. But if the company is found to be negligent in, in causing a disaster, say because it didn't update its really old systems as required, then you have to do what PG&E is doing and pay out for damages, hurting the company, uh, which in turn hurts its owners, which in PG&E's case might now soon be its victims because of this trust that was proposed by the company, which gives victims around a 20% holding. Um, Rick, I want to talk about that holding and, and its effectiveness because it seems like a lot to me, but uh, since you're a student of company ownership, does this trust, which will likely be run by a trustee, give the victims any real say in how PG&E is governed? You know, a 20% holding in the company means that this trust will have principal investor status. That starts at 10%. They will have a significant voice. Will they have control? No, they won't have control. What's unclear is exactly how the trustee uh, representing these individuals will perform their role, who they will be, um, to what extent they will take an active um, role in, in sharing the concerns of this group of individuals uh, back with management. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of details that haven't been clearly established. But there there are also some other factors to consider. I mean, PG&E has almost completely refreshed the board, and they've also adopted some really important changes in their, their corporate governance. Uh, for, for example, uh, they've adopted a new proxy access bylaw provision that will permit shareholders owning at least 3% of the outstanding common stock for at least three years to nominate the greater of two directors or 20% of the PG&E corporate board. Um, that's, a, that's a huge step forward. So that increases or amplifies the, the potential impact of this group be, beyond that, you know, just numerical 20%. How are you feeling about the new board? One of the complaints that I've, I've heard in governance circles about the new board is that um, about half of it is, is comprised of people from, from the hedge fund world, from the financial uh, world, not utility people at all, not energy people. Um, and, and I think that's a fair criticism. On the other hand, uh, considering the situation that they, th this firm was facing, reinvention required a lot of expertise in that area. Um, and it, it also required persuading all of the different players from investors to regulators to victims um, to work together to come up with a workable solution that would allow this company to, to move forward. Yeah, I want to talk about moving forward now. And Umar, I, I want you to speculate for me because PG&E serves 60 million people and its transmission lines are all throughout California, which, which is at a high risk for fires 
and for droughts. Do you see a future where PG&E further damages communities and shareholders? So let's start with the facts said before we venture into any speculations. All of PG&E's infrastructure, the average age of that, when you look at all of its uh, infrastructure, its transmission lines, uh, the pylons, is way past its uh, its due date. They are way above the average age of um, the infrastructure, which would be deemed safe. And PG&E knows that. PG&E has also admitted to the fact that the, the problems had been highlighted, yet it, they were much lower in terms of priority of remedy. Yeah, this Wall Street Journal investigation was actually quite good. And Umar, I want to read a quote from you from it that I wrote down. Okay, so it says, quote, In a 2017 internal presentation, PG&E estimated that its transmission towers were on average 68 years old. And the mean life expectancy of these towers was 65 years old. And the oldest steel tower that PG&E has was 108 years old. I paraphrase that a bit, but basically PG&E knows it has this really outdated system as you talked about. And based on that, one could assume that the pain has not ended for shareholders and the community it serves. But with PG&E, now all of a sudden the shareholders and the community, they're, they're tied together. They're, they're one. They're in this web where the community could be hurt and the best option for the company is the worst option for the community. Exactly. So that introduces an added nuance. And in a way, some people have also accused PG&E of using its victims as human shields because knowing that if the company is now accused or fa or faces uh, large penalties, ultimately the pool of money, the trust, the value of the trust that is going to be compensating victims is, is going to decrease essentially. I, th I think in particular, we, we need to be aware that by accepting the deal and accepting the combination of cash and shares in the company going forward, these individuals are also giving up um, the right to um, put forth additional claims about what has previously happened. I mean, this is intended to be a settlement and allow the company to move forward without having to face potential additional liability claims from based on previous behavior. Is this good for investors, this settlement? I'm not even talking about with PG&E. I think that's too narrow. There's climate risks that are increasing and there are going to be these massive payouts that, that the market has to deal with. Is this setting a model for the future or is this a stopgap and is going to have worse consequences than, than benefits? I can start off with that. I think in the larger scheme of things, it is important that the company continues to provide the services that it is. Electricity is essential and it cannot shut shop and be locked up for all of the transgressions that it has done. This is the way forward. This is to an extent um, the path of least resistance that the company will, al that will allow the company to go back to being a efficient shareholder uh, owned or if perhaps not shareholder owned, but an efficiently run organization with a reconstituted board and management. This is a company that's that's been in trouble. It's been poorly managed. It's been poorly run for all stakeholders for quite some time. Um, it's got an opportunity now to be reinvented. Um, I think that's a uh, that's a plus. Um, but we're going to have to wait and see how how it goes. Will they will they be successful in making this? Um, the kind of responsible company 
in this area that they are describing in the reorganization plan, well, we're going to have to wait and see. Look, I want to play devil's advocate here for a second because I think some people might be listening and say, well, in our uh, 2020 ESG trends report, we wrote about this thing called stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholder capitalism is where companies take into account the wishes of not just their shareholders, but communities and the environment and their suppliers and their customers. And people might be thinking, well, even if PG&E did this only after its neglected infrastructure caused a massive wildfire, this looks like a form of stakeholder capitalism, maybe a diluted form, but still a form. And so at least now we have avoided this moral hazard um, where companies could have seen all these risks that are going to be created and have been created by the climate crisis. And they could just say, you know what, these are too big. We don't have to deal with this. But now maybe the fact that PG&E's shares are now in the hands of the angry citizens that they have hurt, and now those citizens are controlling a good chunk of the company. Uh, this is a good thing. You know, Mike, normally I would agree with you, but the, the trick here is that this is an infrastructure company. This is a company that's supplying power to people every day. It's, it's just a much more complicated set of equations than if this were, say, at the other extreme, a tobacco company. Um or almost any other company in any other sector that's not regulated, that's not part of, of the larger infrastructure of, of our communities. Um, that's, the fee, that's the piece that makes this more complicated. That's the piece that, that demands um, a, a creative solution, if you will. Rick is staying with us to give us some spice on two events that happened this week. First, another story on stakeholder capitalism. Facebook's former sustainability chief has launched Climate Voice, an organization that builds a coalition of employees to push executives at the companies they work at to act on climate change. If you go to the website, it spells out the steps that Climate Voice wants you to take as an employee. First, you sign a pledge, then you campaign, then you grow the community. Rick, do you think this is going to be an effective way to push companies to take action on climate change when they have not done so previously? If effective isn't the word I would use, but I would, I would readily acknowledge that in many cases this may be the only way that that will work. Um, if we look at the, uh, the historical development of shareholder engagement, not, not shareholder activism, which is a very specific form of engagement, but shareholder engagement more broadly, uh, most of the, the larger asset owners who pioneered in this area, area recognized the need to, to talk with companies directly and engage them directly. And in a, the vast majority of cases, just simply reaching out and establishing relationship um, expressing concerns, asking smart questions, that was effective. The, the only time that we saw it, it become something newsworthy, uh, would be the word that comes to mind, was when management was resistant uh, to, a, to a high degree and, and no progress could be made by, by virtue of just simply discussing the problem or the questions or the concerns. And, and that's when we saw these kinds of relationships escalate into the public realm. That made it into a reputational issue. That made it into a question where additional pressure could be brought by virtue of public support. And I, I think that's one of the, the other characteristics of these kinds of, 
um, these kinds of approaches. Right, right. Okay, one more dish for you. Boeing has nominated two new outside directors, Akil Jori, who until recently was finance chief at aerospace manufacturer United Technologies Corporation, and Steve Malenkoff, chief executive of chipmaker Qualcomm. Rick, how do you feel about this? Has Boeing seen the fear in our hearts and changed its ways? So, you know, give them the benefit of a doubt. Give them some more time. Um, but I've not seen any, you know, like dramatic shift um, that suggests, okay, they're, they're on top of this now. They're making the right moves. They're going to they're gonna get this under control. I, I think as time passes, no matter what they do incrementally, Boeing's risk of even more serious catastrophes grows and grows and that's where we're at with this company. What about these these two directors, um, Jory and Molenkov, aerospace manufacturer and chip manufacturer? Do you like them? Do you think they're good? Is it a good decision to appoint them? Yeah, the the um, the the aerospace experience is certainly welcome. I think that that's a good call. No issues there. Um, the the Qual- Qualcomm CEO is much more controversial because there's some some history there, some problems there. Now he's associated with cleaning those up to a great extent, and that seems to be the context in, in which they're bringing him on board Boeing. You need you need people who've weathered these kinds of crises to help you get through it. So that, that makes some sense. But at the same time, this is a current CEO with a lot on his plate already. So um, how much that involvement will be helpful again i you know there's just there's still too many questions that haven't been answered with this firm and that's it for the week i want to thank umar and rick for joining me to talk about this week's news with an esg twist i want to thank you so much for listening don't forget to rate and review us i am never improving but always trying and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts it's a great way to continue to hear my voice thanks again and talk to you next week MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.